This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. There's probably somewhere you're supposed to leave your stuff. I can't work it out, so I've already made a mess within 30 seconds of turning up here. Hello. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to the um, Edinburgh International Books Festival. Uh, my name's Catherine Viner. I'm the deputy editor of The Guardian. I'm delighted to be on stage today to interview Catelyn Moran, uh, the journalist who Time Out described as the funniest writer in Britain, um, and who's written this book, How to Be a Woman, which is spectacularly good. Um, and uh, it came out in June to brilliant reviews. Um, lots of papers described it as sort of the book that you think every teenage girl should read. Um, and J Jermaine Greer called it a voyage to the heart of Catelyn Moran's hairy darkness. <laughs> yeah, thanks Jermaine. She also yeah. criticised her for talking too much about her own masturbation. So yes. maybe, maybe we can talk a bit about that. Um, <laughs> but Catelyn, um, tell us why of all the books you could have written, you decided to write a book about feminism. Well, I just wanted... Is this working, by the way? Can you hear me? Yeah. I've got some kind of weird ear thing. It's not really working very well at the moment. Um, I wanted to write an important book. Can you not hear me? Really? Shall I boom a bit? Is that more boomy? Is that good? Hands up if you can hear me now. Hands up if you can't. We've lost the last two rows. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay, you're going to have to learn to lip read because I can't project any more than this. I'll be very facial. I'll do a lot of gesticulation. We can mime this. Um, I wanted to write an important book. <laughs> I thought if I'm going to write a book, if I'm going to spend like five months or six months or a year writing a book, I would quite like it to be important. And, um, and I used as the catchphrase that I had in my head, uh, the catchphrase from the 1986 John Landis film, The Blues Brothers, uh, wherein uh, our, uh, John Belushi and uh, Dan Aykroyd, uh, they, uh, they used to be raised in an orphanage and they're now grown up and the orphanage is going to be closed down and they decide that they're going to reform their rock and roll band and earn enough money to keep the orphanage um, uh, going. And their, their catchphrase throughout the whole thing is, we're on a mission from God to save this orphanage. Um, but within 10 minutes of the film starting, you realise they're not really on a mission from God at all. They just want to have fun and drive around in crash cars and get off with Carrie Fisher and uh, sing Respect with Aretha Franklin. Um, and, uh, but they still think they're on a mission from God. So all the way through, I was thinking, I'm on a mission from God. I'm going to resurrect feminism. I'm, I'm really on an important mission from God. But really what I was doing was crashing a lot of cars and, uh, and getting off with Carrie Fisher and singing Respect with Aretha Franklin. I just had a hoot writing it because, uh, because there's still so little written about being a woman that's honest or that I'd read anyway. I mean, I think that I'm the only person that's uh, written a book that in the first three opening chapters talks about the first time you menstruate, uh, the growing of a pubic hair, uh, having that pubic hair pointed at by your mother, uh, uh, you trying to distract attention from your pubic hair by going, look, Bergerac is on the television. Um, and then talking about masturbating for the first time whilst thinking about Chevy chasing the three amigos. Um, <laughs> And, and, and I didn't really realise how frank I was, unusually frank I was being until some people read it and went, oh, you're being very brave, which is always a very scary <laughs> sentence for a writer to hear. I basically admit I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> Good luck with that, my friend. But as a comedy writer, if there's stuff that hasn't been written about before, you're kind of looking at it like you're on an open goal and you're kind of running towards the goal going, hang on, has no one, has no one really written about masturbating when you're 13? Has no one, has no one really written about menstruating and kind of, you know, all these things? And you're, you're like, well, that's, I get all the jokes first. I am, I've got a clear shot on goal. I can go for it first. So it was, so it was thrilling to realise that, um, that just simply by being scared, that, that other women being scared, that I had an open shot on all this material. But it's not just a memoir, is it? Can you hear me? Sorry, is there a funny booming noise coming? Yes. 
Yeah, there's a very strange, I don't know if there's any sound experts in the room, but there's a kind of booming. I think it's the sound of my heart, Kath. <laughs> I think. I think I'm one of those women who love too much and you can hear my huge heart beating. Well, that it's stopped now anyway. So. Yeah. Um, but it's not just a memoir, is it? It's political. Yes. Yes, well, that, that just sort of goes back to the idea of, you know, what I did want to write kind of in, but I did I do a bit. I, do, I think the best way to put it, the best sentence to phrase it is, I do a bit want to totally change the world. Um, you know, <laughs> kind of, that's, you know, I don't want to be all kind of raw Che Guevara, um, you know, because that's a bit scary. Um, but, uh, but I did want to change the world a bit. I just kind of, I was astonished that the word feminist and feminism had become unused or even a bad word. You would kind of go and ask the stats on it, but if you ask most women, young women, if they're feminists, they would go, no. Um, and then you'd say, well, what, you don't want to vote and you, you don't want to be able to own property and you don't want to be in charge of your life and you don't want to be in control of your sexuality and your reproductive rights. And they go, well, yeah, all of that. And you go, well, that's, that's feminism. That's being a feminist. That no, doesn't mean anything other than that. I get quite angry when people go, feminism means more than that, that it means better than being a man. Um, or kind of, and it's sort of, it, it, I mean, that's, that's the argument about feminism, isn't it? Everybody has a different view of feminism. But for me, feminism is simply being equal to men. Not better, but just equal. Different, but equal. Um, and that, it seemed a very simple thing. And I just wanted to write a book that just kind of pointed out that it's as simple as that. It's not like the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme. <laughs> I can remember for, you know, you'd have to complete modules or climb a mountain. <laughs> Um, for ages, I just sort of thought, oh, well, I, I'll be a feminist in a bit. I mean, I knew it was a feminist, but it was like, I'll be a proper feminist in a bit. I, you know, I'll study for it properly. I'll do the proper <laughs> feminist things in a while. And then when I knew that I wanted to write a book about feminism, I was like, well, I'll have to give it 10 years because I'll just have to go and read some stuff. And, and then I sort of got to 34 and it was like, well, now I want to do it now. I, th I think if I can't, if I, if I don't know enough now to say why I think women should be equal, then, then I've wasted my life. I, I think you should, what I would really like is for people to now write reply books to it, um, you know, a book called How to Really Be a Woman, how, <laughs> how to Be a Woman Actually, because <laughs> that's what we need. Everyone should be kind of having their arguments about what they think being a woman is. I would like everybody to pitch in. I certainly don't want to be the only one out there writing funny books about feminism now. I would hope everybody kind of pitches in. We can have a massive um, debate about it. What, what I felt when I was reading it was a real sort of sense of relief that someone had finally sort of said enough of all this, you know, enough of the kind of higher and higher heels, the mm. smaller and smaller pants, as you described them, the sort of excessive surgery, the sort of complete hairlessness, because everyone seems to be saying that's all feminist, you can do all those things and be feminist, and you're saying, actually, no, you can't, no, yeah, <laughs> stop no. it, enough. Well, it's, well it's, I mean, it's also, I mean, sort of like, I mean, I'm, I'm very focused on feminism just being kind of being a human as well. And I think it's very difficult for women to just simply be humans, functioning, happy humans, if they essentially see themselves as a massive to-do list of flaws that have to be rectified throughout their entire lives. You know, the world is an essentially joyful place. And, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you should just be going, wow, this is amazing. Let's just try and have as much fun and be as nice as possible and get on with people and enjoy my life as much as possible. But instead, I think a lot of women have a tendency to wake up and go, I still haven't lost that stone. I've got to find a signature perfume. Uh, I, sh I should be experimenting with updos as well as downdos. I need to have a capsule wardrobe. Uh, I need to come up with a novel birthday party for my child, one that the other kids haven't had. And all these things, and they see themselves as a list of faults and a massive to-do list. All of which always ends, as Alison Pearson put it in her book, with must do pelvic floor exercises. <laughs> and never getting around to doing them because they just make you feel irritable. Um, and uh, so, no, so, so, the, so the, you know, one of the ideas in the book was to go, just stop seeing yourself as a list of problems. Just that it's ridiculous, you opt out of, there's that line in the, in the wire. Just, you know, if you're in the game, you're in the game. You know, if you start playing that game of kind of trying to look perfect and trying to 
you know, and, and having the handbag and having the right clothes and, and your makeup being perfect and your hair and all this kind of stuff. That, that's an entirely, you know, you're in that game. That's, and that's an entirely different thing to being a human being. It takes up so much time. And also I just, I mean, mainly because just, I'm just scutty and, uh, and hairy and careless and would rather crack on with something else. And I was becoming increasingly upset by the amount of conversations I was having to have with female friends where they'd just be going on about how much their Brazilians hurt for two hours. Or, and it's just like, stop doing this. I can't join in with this conversation. It's boring. Um, so I thought I'd write a book and make everybody grow their hair back. And then, <laughs> and and then that, I will, how many celebrities have t contacted you? I'm keeping a score sheet of celebrities <laughs> who've tweeted me um, who, have, who, who have vowed to or are going to experiment with growing their pubic hair back in the, uh, in the wake of the chapter in the book about growing your pubic hair back. So far we've got Dawn Porter. Who cancelled uh, her Brazilian who appointment having Brazilian. read the book. Yes. Uh, Davina McCall is, uh, is, uh, is going to spend a month experimenting with her hair before making a final decision. <laughs> it makes me happy. Next time I see these ladies on the red carpet, I'll just be like, yes. <laughs> yes. All the way to their knees. Oh, yes. That's what I like to see. <laughs> I mean, there's a great bit in your book when you're talking to a friend and she's thinking that she might get off with someone on Saturday. So she has to have the Brazilian on Wednesday. So yes. there's time for the rash to die down. The rash to die down, yes. Yeah, yeah. But you have to time doing the leg waxing a bit before because if you're going to do the leg wax, then you have to put the fake tan on. And if you've done the leg waxing too recently, then you get the holes that the fake tan falls into and makes you look like you've got massive ginger freckles on your legs. So, I mean, it takes a week to get ready for a Friday night out. You have to wax the legs first and then put the fake tan on, then get the Brazilian done, let the disfiguring rash die down, and then on the day of the date, do moustache and eyebrows. And that's three separate events, just And as hair. you said, no wonder promiscuity is so rife, because when you've done all of that, you're going to have sex. Yes. <laughs> it has cost me £100 to look like this. You will have sex with me. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 can, I, I genuinely think that might be a correlation in those two statistics. When I go into government, that is <laughs> one of those tickets. So you've no regrets about talking about your ha hairiness, after, particularly after what Jermaine said, well, no, or I mean, about masturbation? Yes, well, no, no, but I mean, about any of it, I just, I, 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 when, when I look at the fact that there are so many things that women won't talk about, even to their best friends, or, you know, certainly to kind of, you know, sort of like in general conversation, that are so, so much part of their lives that you have to spend so much time dealing with. I mean, you know, menstruation, it happens every sodding month. You know, the, the growing of pubic hair and the management of, of hair, masturbation, you know, should be a fairly large part of your life. It's going to keep you sane. And uh, it's certainly cheaper than coming to the Edinburgh Festival. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and then again, you know, kind of like one of the more serious um, chapters in the book on abortion as well. You know, the statistics on abortion are huge. And if you haven't had one, you will almost certainly know someone who has had one. And when there are all these things that are so common to people's lives, but those people aren't talking about it, you have to think, well, that's probably the behavior of some people who are a bit oppressed. You to, keep seek, to keep secrets, to not talk about the reality of your existence, to pretend that your reality is something other than what it is. Um, you realise there's basically women's existences are completely different to what they're projecting or what they're willing to talk about, and that's absolutely bizarre. Um, and so what you need if people, if women are too scared or too shy or too squeamish to talk about these things, is someone with absolutely no shame at all who will quite happily <laughs> sit down and write a book about all these things going rah, 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 rah. Now I really, I, I, sort of, I, I don't really get embarrassed about this stuff. My, I was brought up to feel very ashamed of these things. Uh, you know, our family didn't talk about it, sort of talk about it in the book, kind of, you know, I didn't know, for instance, what would happen when my period started. And uh, we lived down the road from a school, and about two months before my period started, by coincidence, someone stuffed the Lillette's leaflet in the hedge. And uh, I pulled it out of the hedge and looked at it, and first of all, it didn't make any sense at all. It just seemed to be a system of warrens or burrows. <laughs> 
<laughs> to which you would put something that looked a bit like a mouse and it seemed a bit it just seemed absolutely I couldn't work out how that would work at all and also I thought it was absolutely optional uh, I just <laughs> I just looked at it and went nah I fancy doing that no and then just put the leaflet in a bin and then I can't remember from where but I found out it was actually going to happen to me and I still remember the absolute screaming disbelief and fury when it did start happening it was like this is not fair I am a child I don't want this at all this is horrible I think girls often feel very very angry when they start their adolescence because you're still a kid you know you don't want this that's what I put in the book you don't want this sudden you, if you really wanted to screw a child up you would give it a massive dose of oestrogen uh, you know, just suddenly and unwarrantedly, without asking for it at all, you suddenly get tits, you're suddenly bleeding, you're having to deal with sanitary towels and tampons, and, and the way that people treat you is differently. As I say sort of in the book, it's almost like being famous. If you're a girl and you suddenly start growing breasts and developing, suddenly from just being a kid on a skateboard that no one would take any attention to, you're just walking down the street and some builders are going, hey, tits McGee! And you're like, what? <laughs> why, why, why are you paying all this attention to me? Why have I now got to be self-conscious and dress because I know other people's gaze is, is upon me and, and live in acknowledgement of the fact that people kind of know who I am because I'm a girl and I'm now growing breasts. I'm kind of sexy and I'm now sort of a target and people will look at me. So it made me furious. I was, I was very, very angry when I became a teenage girl. And uh, I can't remember what the question was, but I was, <laughs> but it was that, yeah. Very, <laughs> very much so. Very much and so. then I finished the chapter like this and wrote <laughs> another one. <laughs> you, you sort of take aim quite a lot in the book at, at sort of celebrity culture. You'd have what, one of my favourite lines of the last two years when you described Jordan as Vichy France with tits. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's not so much. I mean, I kind of almost feel bad about the Jordan chapter because when I was writing, the, you realise how quickly things change in, in the celebrity world, but there were, there were a variety of uh, serious pieces written. In fact, the, the Times did one, and I think probably The Guardian did as well because we were all at it for a while, um, of pieces where we, journalists would put forward the theory that Jordan might actually be a feminist role model uh, simply because uh, she earned a lot of money. Uh, I mean, that did seem to be what it boiled down to, um, but I couldn't understand the, the logic of this at all because if you're, if you're earning money by pandering to sexism, uh, you know, if you're a woman earning your money by pandering to sexism, then you are Vichy France with tits. You are, to paraphrase the, actually, that's too sweary, isn't it? I can't, I can't, I can't do that other line that's in there. That's probably too sweary. Uh, but, uh, but yes, that's what you are. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I, I also, I mean, I did, I did a thing in a school recently where you kind of turn up as a writer and you try and inspire people, and they just sit there going, and uh, and I was talking to all the teenage <coughs> girls about who their role models were, and uh, and they almost all said Katie Price. And that really, really dispirited me hugely. They couldn't really sort of name anyone else, and they just liked the fact that she was rich. And they didn't see, you know, having spent, I had to spend a week with her for a feature. And just walking around with her, I was just thinking, you know, even, even if she had made all of her money by sort of completely betraying, you know, the, the notions of kind of, you know, female sexuality, pro properly expressed happy female sexuality and all this kind of stuff, even if she'd made her money by pandering to sexism, if she was happy and living a functional life, then I would probably be fine with her and I wouldn't bother writing the chapter. But she was the most miserable bitch I've ever spent time with. Oh, God. She just, she cold, dead basilisk eyes. She treated everyone like an asshole. There was this kind of sighing kind of, oh, God, do I really have to do this kind of thing about getting into a limousine in a huge dress and talking to people and trying to sell her lingerie range to people. She was incredibly rude. Um, there was an amazing moment where uh, the model Caprice walked past and she just went, she's so false. <laughs> <laughs> Which I found extraordinary. There was also another amazing exchange where um, she was talking about how she, um, she judged celebrities on whether they had good-looking nannies for their children. She was like, 
we've got a good-looking nanny because I know Peter Andre, her then-husband at the time, number one. Uh, I know he wouldn't have sex with her. But if you look at Victoria and David Beckham, all their nannies are ugly because she knows David will fuck them if they're not. And again, what an amazing worldview to have, just checking out their nannies in order to work out if a marriage is working well or not. And, and, and also, and on top of all of that, I think my main problem with her, again, I don't really care about all of that, but it's her kids. I, you know, I, I could now recognise Junior Andre from 500 yards away with a bag <laughs> on his head because he is roped into every single photo shoot she ever does. She did an amazing lingerie photo shoot for OK, um, where she was dressed up like a streetwalker with makeup out to here and just in a bra and the pants that she designed, leaning over a car in a kind of sexy way with her two children on either side of her, just kind of staring at mummy in her knickers and bra looking all sexy at the camera. And in Victorian times, if a woman had to take her children to work with her, then we invented the state in order to give her benefits and say, you don't need to put your kids up a chimney. But now, now this middle-class multimillionaires is like roping her kids into her work every day and, and, and meaning that they will never be anonymous, that they will always be famous, they will always be chased by people, that they'll never be able to be, have proper friends because their friends will be going, oh, look, I know Peter Andre, Peter Andre's kid, I can tell a story about this. Um, I, I, everything she does is wrong. I'm very angry about her. I'm furious. <laughs> I'm going to write another chapter about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you also, quite, you also take aim at surgery, uh, plastic surgery, Botox, which has become very normalised very quickly. Yes. I quite like Botox because it almost sounds like buttocks, and the idea that people are injecting buttocks into their faces <laughs> makes me quite happy. But it also is that's what it makes your face look like after a while. It does just <laughs> look a bit bummy. Um, yeah, I was, I mean, again, I couldn't work out, I mean, it was all kind of, it was all sort of worky stuff out, and I was like, in my guts, and I don't really like people to go, my gut feeling is that this is wrong, because that was what David Cameron said about, about um, proportional representation, wasn't it? He just went, I just feel in my guts it's wrong. It's like, I really would like you to have slightly more stats on that. <laughs> maybe would have liked you to research that, maybe read something about it, rather than a tickly feeling in your tum-tum. <laughs> but, uh... But I did have a gut feeling that the plastic surgery was wrong. Not least because it costs so much and it hurts, which are usually two very good reasons for not doing anything at all. Um, but it was going to, I went to um, an, uh, an awards ceremony and it was kind of where um, the, the great and the good were gathered. And it was the sort of, it was, and I was nervous about going there. It was the first kind of big thing that I'd ever gone to, kind of big showbiz thing. And I knew there were going to be lots of older, very distinguished, very wealthy women who were kind of amazing in their careers there. And I was like, oh, I'm just still a little squitty kid, I'm going to turn up here. I'm kind of embarrassed about being around them. And I turned up, and instead of being kind of like astonished by their power and their confidence, I was astonished by the fact that they all had very visibly had work done on their faces, and that that made them look scared, because they were standing next to their husbands and around their co-workers, male, who had had nothing done to their faces at all, yet having completely parallel careers and being equally rich and each equally powerful. And the men were standing there confidently with their faces, all growing up and turning into great big wizards with huge <laughs> beards and massive wrinkles, and the women were standing next to them, having spent thousands and thousands of pounds still trying to look like they were 35 and it not working and it being obvious that they'd had stuff done. So I'm hang on, why the, I mean, the, one of the recurring phrases in the book is if you're worried, if you think that some sexism might be happening, the question you have to ask yourself is, are the boys doing it? Are the men doing this? Are the men having to deal with this kind of bullshit? And it was very clear in that room of incredibly successful people, incredibly talented people who should be incredibly confident that all the men hadn't had anything done and nearly all of the women had. And that made me think that is, why are women spending their pension money, or their fun money, or their jewels money, or their cheese money, or their hats money, on having massively painful injections in their faces that you notice as well? I mean, even the most subtle, I know a friend who went to America, one of the most right-on feminists I know, an incredible woman, went to America, came back, and she had all, I'll tell you what it is later. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you'll have noticed because it was obvious. Um, and she just came back and it was like, because she'd been in LA and she'd forgotten what normal faces looked like. She'd had her lips done, she'd had that kind of weird cheeky thing done. And all of her friends when she walked in the room were like, hi! <laughs> Didn't know what to say, couldn't make any mention of it. And that's another reason why I wanted to write about it because you all know, you know when your friends have had stuff done, but we all feel we can't mention it. And I kind of wanted it to get to the point where we could mention it again, where you could just go, I love you to bits, but you look weird. <laughs> You've done a really weird thing to your face that costs you lots of money. <laughs> Why have you done that? And again, women can't do it. You know, it's now got to a point of etiquette where women will not say to their friends, you've had some, something cosmetic done. Certainly you're not in my polite, slightly uptight circle anyway. <laughs> you have noticed you've had something done to your face. Why did you do that? And again, if women aren't willing to talk about the fact that they've had this stuff done and go, it seems to have gone quite wrong, dude. <laughs> I'd let that drain out and maybe not re replenish that one. Then that again seems really wrong. And that's why I wanted to write about that as well. But it, again, it's about women sort of spending loads of time mm. doing things other than interesting things in yes. their lives. So, you know, you have this great line that women are seen to be failing if they're not a bit neurotic. Yes. That they could just have a good time, enjoy themselves, do interesting things, meet interesting people, rather than... Well, the, again, kind of, you know, kind of, if you start talking to a man, you start having a conversation with a guy, you go, what have you been up to? Or, no, okay, if, if a dude's done something great, you have some mate and he's done something fantastic, you go, oh, that's amazing, dude, that's fantastic. You'd be like, yeah, 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 no, thanks, yeah. And you'll be all like, yeah. Say exactly the same thing to the audience. You'd be like, oh, well, look, it's just enormous luck. I, you know, I mean, I should have done it better anyway. Oh, it's just, it, was, it, was, it was all a bit weird. Oh, God, no, I wish you hadn't said that. Oh, no, it's made me feel pressurised. And then women will immediately start <laughs> tearing themselves to bits about what they've done. Um, and, and yes, and, and it is that thing that kind of, you know, that, you, that women do feel that they need to be... That was why I kind of very... Because very often as a humorist, the easiest thing to do if you're writing something funny is to kind of go on about what a twat you are and kind of like make the joke be on you. And obviously in some cases that's the correct thing to do, but there were many, many cases in there where I thought the easy joke would be to go, and I was stupid here now, or kind of I did something wrong, or oh, well, I'm a bit thick so I don't understand this. And I really consciously kind of went, no, I'm not going to go there with that kind of joke. I think so, and also so much female humour is predicated on it. You know, I will talk about having a clever thought here, or you know, I, you know, not in a kind of I'm amazing. Well, look, look, I'm doing it there, look, I'm, I'm self-deprecating myself. Yeah, Why don't yeah. I just thought I was did it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I am incredible, I'm genuinely. <laughs> Quite astonishing, um, <laughs> but it was just kind of not going for the easy joke yeah. and, and being truthful, just kind of just keeping yourself very present all the way through, and just going, I'm not going to go for the easy joke there. I'm going to say no. I did have a long and complex thought here. I did sit this one out. I, you know, I did not get drunk at that point. I did make a difficult decision. I did try and act honourably and nobly. Uh, you know, kind of all these things that sort of you, you don't really hear. Where, you know, I will work really hard. Things that you don't hear women talking about. And instead, just go, oh, it was all just an amazing amount of luck, and then and then it, then it all happened. But it's disturbing this idea that women wake up and they think. As you say, you say their first thought is, I still haven't lost that weight, maybe yes. I should get my lips done, whatever. Yeah, well that's why I just would really like, I mean, it's, I can't remember if it's in the book or something else that I was talking about recently, but I, I think there needs to be a general lowering of the standard. And obviously I would say that because my standards are quite low, <laughs> but, but I think it would be this amazing thing, for like for the last sort of like 20 years women have been in this kind of, the best way that you can be a woman is just to just be as amazing fuck off as possible. You're just going to be so sexy in the city, you're just going to be driven and like all shoey and hairy and just put loads of work into it and it's just going to be hard. It's just like working and baby and working and baby and <laughs> an amazing apartment and only get the most amazing husband and then your kids are going to be flashcarded all the way through and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I, I think that's just made us very, very tired. I just kind of, we just, it just means we're all having to buy Nespresso machines and just eat the capsules for caffeine. Um, I, I think what would be genuinely revolutionary is if all the women just suddenly stood up now and went, nah, fuck it. No, you know what, I'm just gonna, I just, 
I mean, really? No. What I'm going to do is I'm going to be this. I'm going to be pretty clean. I will wash fairly regularly. Um, I'm going to be polite because that's the most important thing in the world. I'm going to be nice because that's also very lovely and it actually makes your life easier if you're nice to people. And I'm going to, you know, just, and that's it. I don't think we really need to aspire to much more than that, to be clean, to be light and be nice. And that's, and, and everything then all the headspace that frees up. It's so much time. Yeah. I mean, it would just be, it would just be really lovely if instead of this kind of arms race that women have got now, <laughs> I mean, particularly sort of like in media London, it'll be kind of like, you know, someone will stick their bag down on the table and then someone else will put their bag down on the table. And it's like, well, mine was 600 quid. Well, mine was 800 quid. And then you kind of, you know, and then you put your legs up and it's all the shoes and stuff. And I've got a, a handbag from Topshop. I can just I kick mine underneath the table and just kind of like, we can't, can't, I can't join that arms race at all. We need to decommission all of our fashion weapons. <laughs> we need to decommission all of our beauty weapons. We need to stop looking for new laser things and plucky things and makeup y things and just, you know, a bit of eyeliner out the door. That's enough. <laughs> I, I like a little bit clean. Like yeah, a little bit clean. <coughs> yeah, I mean, a slight musk is actually quite pleasant. Uh, you know, <laughs> don't want to be too dental, you know, kind of, you don't need to zoflora everywhere. But yeah, just generally a brighter face will do, I think. You talk, you talk quite a lot, you know, are the boys doing it? Asking the question, are the boys doing it? Does this apply to men? About being one of the guys. Yes. Um, do you sort of wish you were a bloke? Would life be a lot easier if you were a bloke? Oh, no, no. I feel sad of men. Um, <laughs> no, not sad, sad, but kind of like, well, first of all, you know, I do love clothes and prettiness. And, and every day men just, I mean, it's obviously works massively to their advantage as well. But I personally would be sad if every day I woke up and my only, all that I could get dressed in was some trousers and a top, which is all that men wear. That is, as dandy or homosexual. Sexual, as that, you may be men that's all you have is, is that the just hardest thing men face? well no but just just that kind of that's a lack of joy and um and also you know uh I mean, what, what do i like about being men i mean sexually i think it's better to be a woman there are, there are definite advantage i think of being a lady than a man we just get more um you know it's all over quite quickly for men we can just carry on for ages that's enormous fun and that's a massive you know but all of you, these Mother things Nature. you talk about yes waking up with a head full of stuff about tiny pants high heels hairiness but that's surgery. Us, they don't face that. But that's us, that's us being silly now. You know, we we you know, once you decide that you're going to ignore all of that, then 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 what have you got left being a woman? Well, first of all, you know, sex is much better. Um, and secondly, kind of, you know, as I put in the book, you know, we've had a hundred thousand years of the patriarchy, and men must be quite tired now, and uh, and they quite visibly are. Uh, you know, kind of uh, pop music is the first sort of area of culture that shows kind of uh, cultural changes because it's the most immediate, it's the most fast. You can sort of record a single in a couple of weeks, and it's just really noticeable. That that the girls have just taken over the charts now. You can't sort of, I remember talking to my editor last year and, uh, and they were, we were talking about some male guitar band and she was just like, oh God, there's no point in writing about men with guitars anymore, is there? We just, you know, we just need to be, just need to have Adele or Lady Gaga or Rihanna or, or uh, Jessie J. It's, it's all about the girls now. Um, and I'm sure that that will now roll out. That's just the most immediate art form. But I suspect in the next 10 years, it's all going to be about the women comedians. It's all going to be about the female writers. MPs, it's all going to be about businesses. It's got, it's got to be the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's difficult there because you're, you're walking into an already constructed boys game, aren't you? For the same reason that I get asked to do TV a lot. I get asked to do, like, have I got news for you and all these kind of things. And I won't do it because that's a boys game that boys have made. And that's fine. Of course, some boys were going to make a game for boys. That's fantastic. But if you just inject one token girl into it, it's, it's not going to work for you. You either go in and play by the boys' rules and often lose because you're a girl, um, or you just opt not to do that at all. 
And I think it's very interesting to notice that kind of if you talk to any kind of comedy commission, the editor, they'll be like, we need to have more women on telly, we need to have more women on TV. Uh, and then they just think that by inviting a woman onto 8 out of 10 cats or QI, that will solve it. <laughs> um, but that's already a boys' game, and most clever women, the funny women that I know, wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. But the one place that there was a new area opened up where there were no rules, and it was just simply a new place where you could go and perform, which was Twitter, was just swarmed by women straight away, and women run Twitter now. All the funny people are, who are on Twitter are women. And that was because it was a play. We got in there maybe two or three weeks before the boys. <laughs> maybe it was football season or something, I don't know. But I just know when Twitter was invented, there was this kind of like two-week period where all the women I know were like, boys haven't turned up yet. We can do what we like. We can set all the rules. And we owned it, and that was our, that was our new place there. So, so it's the same with, the, same with Parliament. I mean, I, 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 do, I do kind of suspect that it, it, we still won't get a proper um, uh, proportional representation of female MPs until Parliament changes, because it is still so much a boys' game that you just get crushed. You talk to female MPs who work there, and just the hours don't fit in with your your home life. And women aren't prepared to sacrifice, you know, their entire family in order to be able to work there, and they just find it absolutely crushing as a long-term job. You can go in there for ten years and then just kind of go, I can't, I can't handle this anymore. And I think they do need to change the working hours in Parliament for that to work. But uh, but yeah, generally, I think because this is a culture that is enthralled to the new, and women still haven't had our chance yet you know there has been no female beetles and you know cities built by women and stock markets and, and exchanging systems built by women we haven't put women on the moon yet you know all these things we haven't done and it's going to be women next because we've kind of heard everything that the boys are going to say and so being a woman now in the 21st century is incredibly exciting this is why i would not want to be a boy at all apart from the trousers um it's it, it's the most exciting thing to be now as a woman because by implication, pretty much anything we have to say or any experience we have to share is new and therefore exciting and novel. I, I found um, uh, one blog which described you as too funny. <laughs> too funny. <laughs> and that feminism you know, should be taken more seriously than this. Oh. And that, um, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what would you oh, say? It's been serious <laughs> enough. No, I mean, I mean, is it? I guess, I guess um, it was a ridiculous remark. But yeah. are they all, I mean, I guess uh, what they were wondering is: is this radical enough? Is it radical enough to change the world? Um, well. I mean, the main thing that I wanted to do was just make anybody think that they could be a feminist, just to realise that simply by saying I'm a feminist, you are a feminist. Um, so, I, being radical, I think it's fairly radical. I mean, it's kind of you know, it's it's anti-consumerist, it's pro-masturbation, it's, <laughs> it's, it's pro-abortion, uh, you know, it's, it's a fa fairly sort of liberal, firm liberal basis there, but, but it wasn't really going so far that I was interested in it, just going as wide as possible. I wanted to make it as inclusive as possible. I wanted a 12-year-old girl who had a vague sense of kind of what was right and what was wrong and what aggrieved her about being a girl to be able to read it and by the end of it and go, oh, okay, I understand now. I've got things that I can say if someone stupid tries to argue with me that I'm not clever because I'm a girl. Um, yeah, and I wanted it to be really inclusive. Uh, that, that was the main thing. I just wanted, and also I just wanted it to be really friendly and not scary. I think, again, being a woman, it can be so scary uh, often. There are just all these, you know, when you're, there's so many things to get wrong being a bird. You know, if you, if you, if you, you know, there's a season's eyebrow shape, and if you don't have the right shape of eyebrows, some other women and homosexuals may judge you. Men would never notice it, straight men, but you know, you will be judged for having the wrong kind of eyebrow or using this week's wrong slang word, or you know, the, the colour of your hallway. You'll see things about, you know, the colour of your front door and what it means to you. All this is a pitfall being a woman. And I just wanted to sort of put my hand onto sort of all the women's brows and just go, let's just sack it off. It's just, let's not worry about this stuff anymore. Let's, let, let's, and also, it's very hard to be oppressed when you're laughing. You know, kind of, you know, it's, the minute you start laughing at this ridiculous stuff, um, I think it probably does you 
obviously I would say this because I'm a humorist, but uh, I think it does you far more good to be able to laugh at oppression than to be able to quote three pages about why oppression is wrong. I'm not even really interested in, the thing I realized, because I don't know any facts and I don't like doing research, um, that what I really couldn't do was put forward an argument between the right and wrong of sexism. All I could do is try and make sexism look not cool. That was, that was the, the only thing that I could do. And also, you know, it just circumnavigates loads of arguments. I'm, I, you, you can't prove to me that I'm wrong. I'm simply going to laugh at you for being an idiot instead. It's, a, I think, a much better uh, approach. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure we've got lots of uh, questions in the audience. Because if you don't, I will sing. <laughs> there will be an awkward silence where people think they don't want to ask questions and I will sing. I will start with the songbook of Mariah Carey. <laughs> I like how that hand went. <laughs> Do us. Oh, you would have liked my hero. It was amazing. <laughs> I loved your chapter on pornography and all the joyless pornography that you'd seen. I just wondered if you'd found any good stuff yet and if you could let me know about it, if you have. Oh, I found some, oh my God, I have found some amazing stuff. If you go on, um, if you go on YouTube, um, no, YouPorn, which is like uh, uh, just free pornography, kind of like amateur stuff on there. There's some really lovely, it's heartwarming little backstories on the whole thing. Like there's one where, um, because loads of amateur couples just film themselves and put it up there and it's all very low rent and one of them there's a couple and she's on top and they're having some sexy sex and uh, she's got her hair in braids with beads on and uh, they've been at it for about three minutes and suddenly the, her husband can't take it anymore goes my retina <laughs> <laughs> my retina is my favorite one but there's another one where there's <laughs> There's another couple, they're having sex, and it's all lovely sexy sex, and uh, then suddenly you just hear the sound of, Mummy, I want a glass of water! <laughs> and a child just comes in through the door, and they go, oh, go sort this all out and stuff. Um, there's, there's some, just some of them are just really, there's, there's another one where there's a couple at it on the sofa, he's got his socks on, it's oh, astonishing how often in, in pornography people, men will keep their socks on. <laughs> I always find that, I actually find that quite moving, just like, he was so keen, he kept his socks on, amazing. Um, didn't have time to take them off. Um, but no, there's another couple who are having sex on a sofa from four off uh, quite painfully <laughs> and uh, and have to comfort <laughs> and have to comfort each other because uh, he's banged that funny bone in your elbow that makes you feel a bit sick and, uh, <laughs> and she's just holding it go you'll be okay just breathe, breathe deeply for a couple of minutes and that's the I mean, that's one of the things that I don't like about pornography you don't see the funniness of it or kind of you know the, the conversations and kind of the human element of it rather than it just being some you know some mechanical position shifting and things being sort of put in and out like bad pistons um, you know it should be about giggling and jokes and ridiculous things that are happening so yeah there's loads of really good amateur porn uh, yeah no uh, you, you you porn I would recommend and it's free um, but you know clear your web history browser if you're at work afterwards it's kind of <laughs> always useful <laughs> Yes, please. Hello. Um, what, have you had kind of reaction from men to your book? They really, all the ones, I mean, it would be difficult for a man to come up to someone who's written a book about feminism and I didn't like it, because <laughs> you've made a fairly clear statement that you would become quite angry about that and maybe possibly physically attack him. Um, but, uh, but no, it's been really lovely. The really handsome one from Downton Abbey, Dan Stevens, wrote a really lovely review of it uh, for The Times, which was enormously flattering. And um, who else? I mean, Simon Pegg and Jonathan Ross, uh, Dara O'Brien. It's kind of all the comedy boys, Chris Addison from the thick of it. Um, it's just been amazing just kind of getting all these emails from boys just going, because they like it as a piece of comedy writing. Um, and also, I mean, one of the things that kind of, 
I was astonished when I went into my publishers at first and said, I want to write a book about feminism. They were all gung-ho about it, but we were talking about the marketing for it. They were, they're incredibly enthused about it. They've been brilliant. But one of the things they said jokingly was, well, you know, you've got rid by writing a book called How to Be a Woman, it, we've knocked out 40%, 48% of a potential audience. And I found that really odd because one of the other things that I really strongly believe about feminism is that feminism is of equal concern to men as to women because we all kind of live quite near each other, you know, kind of we all, men and women, we're all kind of related to each other and next door to each other and marrying each other and working with each other. And so if women are oppressed or unhappy or doing weird, bizarre things or spending all of a couple's potential yacht money on having their, their fat knees sorted out, um, you know, th that's of equal concern to men as to women. And so loads of the men that have read it have just gone, so many things that I found confusing about basically they realize kind of the problems that women have that we would be too embarrassed to tell them about because you do feel like a bit of a div just you know I, mean, I, I, I suspect there isn't a woman in this room who hasn't either not left for a party or left very late because you just felt too fat to leave the house one evening and trying to explain that to a man is often quite difficult they're like you look exactly the same as you did yesterday you, you palpably aren't any fatter than you were yesterday or when we went to another party and you're like no no but today the fatness has come I'm an, oh I just feel fat in my eyes my eyes feel fat oh what a fat leg thing um so yeah so it's you know it's kind of a manual for for men to kind of go oh right i thought you were a crazy bitch but it was actually the patriarchy i get it right <laughs> a man thank a you. man oh i love men feminists they're my favorite unless you're about to say that you hate all women that would be kind of that would be a big bomb i was just going to comment on the chapter that you alluded to which i've just completed that I am fat yes um, it, it's, it's really a comment rather than a question it's the kind of chapter that needs to be on the national curriculum because as a as a fat teenager and a slightly overweight getting on for 50 person it's just seemed so relevant and everything about it was I, I recognized oh, and you. wanted well what it needs needs a lot more publicity that kind of chapter because it impacts upon so many of us what you're it was saying there. When I when I finished that chapter, I have to say I did have a very self-satisfied cigarette. Uh, I just go. <laughs> tell, tell us I really busted that one. Well, I tell just. Tell us what you say. In the well, in the as someone who's like kind of just been confused by food all my life, uh, we sort of our family very poor, and so all that was in the house was carbohydrates. Uh, it took me a very long time to realise kind of what normal food was. I think I was probably only about 27 when I realised that a, a normal meal was not this much potatoes covered in very cheap margarine, such as Vitalite or Stork SB, uh, which, was, which was very much a fundamental meal of my, of my childhood. And uh, but basically it sets out this thing that, it was something that I realised when a friend of mine went into rehab at the Priory. And I went there mainly because I was quite curious to see what the priory was like and see if Kate Moss was there or something. <laughs> she wasn't. And uh, it's a bit of a dump as well. But, uh, but she was talking about the hierarchy of people there with problems. And it's the, the, the uh, heroin addicts and the coke addicts are seen as kind of the coolest people there. Um, and then they pick on the uh, alcoholics who are the sort of second-rung addicts, people with uh, problems. And then everybody picks on the people with eating disorders. So the bulimics and the anorexics, they're just seen as the lowest of the low. And just suddenly thought, and I just suddenly thought that that is absolutely true. If you are, you know, if, if you're a wrecked alcoholic and staggering around and stuff, you know, in, in bands, you know, if you're an alcoholic in a band, you know, you're, you're uh, with a booze problem, that's still seen as quite cool, you know, kind of, you know, it's, it's not amazing, but you know, there's still be that kind of, you know, the stones are acting around there, they're drunk, or you know, you're taking drugs and stuff. You know, Keith Richards, he's taking loads of heroin, you know. <laughs> 
He's obviously being an arsehole. He's, you know, he's having to get his seven-year-old son to wake him up and put him on stage. But everyone still thinks he's really cool and the picture's taking him looking all hollow and gaunt-eyed and it's fantastic. If you reverse that and imagine that instead of uh, loving heroin, Keith Richards really loved carbs. And if on the Satanic Majesty's Request tour he'd just been eating loads of potatoes and Tunnock's tea cakes um, and just like eating shepherd's pies at four o'clock in the morning and become really, really fat. Um, you know, he would be being a darling. He would be waking up and probably making his bed in the hotel room and turning up to everything on time and stuff. But everybody would be taking the piss out of him just because he was fat. And eating disorders are the, it, it's the comfort, it's the, it's the abusive and addictive behavior of someone who can't afford to lose it, who needs to be on top of their game. If you're looking after kids, if you're a care, if you're looking after elderly parents and stuff, it's a way of self-medicating that means that you're still on, on duty 24 hours a day, you can still look after people. You can't do that if you're an alcoholic, you can't do that if you're on drugs, you'll have to sort of remove yourself and go and enjoy your problem elsewhere and be selfish about it. Whereas eating disorders are the, are the eating disorders usually of women, because they're usually the carers, where you're still on duty for other people. It's, it's a very unselfless thing, you're only damaging yourself. And, um, and I was just like, and, and I really recognised that in myself, and that was why sort of I used to overeat a lot. I sort of went up to a size 24 at one point and um, sort of gradually realised why it was that I was eating so much. And I was just thinking, well, what would, what would help that then? What would help people who kind of secretly go and eat and are doing this in order to, to make themselves feel better? And we need to be open about it. Again, you know, you should be able to come in the office in the same way that you go, I was so drunk last night. I did like five margaritas and then a bottle of vodka. I was being sick, it was ridiculous. You should be able to come into the office and go, I was on the mash last night like you would not believe. I had mash in my hair, I had mash down my front, I was eating fistfuls of mints out the pan um, and just be a bit more you know and again take the piss out of it joke about it rather than just secretly quietly as I used to just standing in front of the fridge just eating stuff and not even tasting it and gulping it down um, I mean it was bad that I had a cigarette when I finished that chapter but previously I would have resorted myself with five cheese sandwiches like that so in a way I've moved on <laughs> <laughs> who else have we got Um, you say that like it's really exciting for women to be, you know, to be a woman in the 21st century. Like now is the best because everything, you mm -hmm. know, a woman says is a bit more novel. And how, like, female pop stars have started paving the way in the way that it's not like guitar-y bands, you know, as it was as it was before. But I, I'm just a bit confused. Is how how are they doing it differently? How say, for example, has Rihanna different from Jordan? I mean, they're still. Are they not pandering a bit to sexism as well themselves? Like, because there there have been female musicians. No, absolutely. Like well, with Rihanna, it's it's sort of again, it's one of those things where you go in. Okay, my gut feeling is that this is wrong. You know, it's not wrong for a woman to kind of like talk about her sexuality or kind of you know act in a sexual way. Rock and roll's a lot about sex, but. We really do seem to have a bit of a monoculture here and that kind of all the girls that come along in pop are all singing about sex. Uh, you know, they're all just wearing... I mean, when I watched MTV with my kids, we, I was trying to think about how I would go, look, Rihanna makes amazing songs. These are fantastic songs and, you know, the same. Um, but how, how do I explain to the kids that I think it's wrong that she's only there in her bra and pants? And we, we just feel very sorry for Rihanna. That was what we decided to do. We felt, we felt very sorry for Rihanna. I, I would say to the girls, you know, if Rihanna's got a lovely song, but someone else wrote it for her. And, uh, and if she was really powerful, she'd be able to wear a lovely cardigan or a dress in this video. <laughs> but she still hasn't got quite important enough to be able to put her clothes back on and sing about something else. So we do, we like this song, but we feel sorry for Rihanna, don't we girls? And the girls go, yes. <laughs> we do feel sorry for her. And we call that kind of dancing body body dancing. When you're having to just dance with your body out, we go, oh, sad, she always has to do a body body dance. She never does a happy dance, does she? Um, or a comfortable dance. It's always body body dancing, isn't it? And the girls go, yes, yes, it is. It is body body dancing. 
So, I mean, you know, very, and also the other thing is, I mean, it's such a recent thing as well. I do tend to blame it all on the Spice Girls uh, whenever I get the chance. But I was watching MTV, and if you watch kind of like, the, they were doing an MTV through the decades thing in chronological order. So you start watching pop music in the 80s and sort of like up to the mid 90s, and women are wearing clothes. It's amazing. There are people wearing jackets and jeans and on top of the pops. Banana wore baggy jeans and DMs. Exactly, yeah, yeah and dungarees and yeah. stuff. And like, and I think sort of like New Jill Swing was the last time that black women particularly were allowed to wear any clothes in videos whatsoever. And they are wearing like DMs and like and jeans and kind of like big boxy jackets and stuff. And it's really lovely watching them. And um, and then you get to kind of well, you get to the Spice Girls, and then the clothes just fall off because no one had ever thought. Everyone was so astonished that a female band, everyone had gone an all-girl band could never be the biggest band in the world. And then they did become the biggest band in the world. And just in the 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 what's the exact Hunter Thompson um, line about the music industry? It's like a corridor where bad men and dead dogs run free or something. The shallow money trap. The shallow money trap of the music industry. Looked at the Spice Girls and went, well, why is this sold? It's because they're all sexy. Okay. There can be other girl bands, but they will all have to be sexy now. It'll all be tits and ass. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, because the Spice Girls were talking about girl power, that was when the word feminism kind of disappeared from our popular schedule and uh, became replaced by the word girl power, which means absolutely nothing at all. Uh, if you look at the tenets of girl power, it uh, consists entirely of being nice to your friends. And uh, of course, you're supposed to be nice to your friends. It's like, really? Is that all that you have to say, Jerry Halliwell? But from that point onwards, you don't see people wearing, you don't see women wearing clothes again. All the clothes just fell off. And that's, but, but to come back to your original point, because I remembered what it was, and that's quite rare for me, because I have a very bad short-term memory. Um, saying that all girls look the same in the pop charts. Well, first of all, Lady Gaga, she might do body body dance, but um, but she's also wearing like meat on her head and shoes that look like armadillos. And I mean, as I put in the book, it's most assuredly not there for straight men to masturbate over. Lady Gaga is there to freak you out. And it is there for girls and it's there for gays and it's for freaks. It's for people who feel marginalized and stuff. And her songs are about uh, 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 despair and uh, self-loathing and weirdness and empowerment and stuff. It's very much not kind of, hey, come and get me, boys. Um, and Adele is the selling artist in the world, I think, at the moment, and she wears dresses with sleeves. I mean, <laughs> it's got it's got to the point where I feel that's a pathetic advancement for women, but she's a ginger girl who smokes and drinks pints and wears dresses with sleeves, and that's just amazing for me. Mm. I would campaign, I would say that the revolution has already started based on the fact that I can't see Adele's upper arms. I'm just so happy for her. <laughs> the sleeve revolution. Yeah. Thank you. G'day there. Just trying to work out how you're looking at role models across the board. Um, I don't know a great deal about uh, senior role models in the British area, but we're talking right across where females are going to be working, whether it be within your industry, uh, mainstream industry, and where, I mean, it's, it is fun to take a look at it for the women that are growing up, but how do you get rid of that boys club, which is your parliament and the like? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> if I did, I'd have done a chapter on it because then the book would have been longer and I could charge more for it. Um, <laughs> I don't know that one. I mean, one of the things I think is very important is just not limiting yourself to role models. For instance, uh, I think women should acknowledge that they have male role models and talk about those as well. I find it very important to be able to talk about the fact that I love David Bowie. Um, and also time travel for your for your female role models as well. Like for instance, E. Nesbitt, who wrote The Wayward Children and stuff, was like one of the early uh, founders of the Fabian Society, which turned into the Labour Party. Um, I mean, it's pathetic that I always keep saying this.
activist, but she smoked fags. But that's quite exciting in the 1920s. Um, you know, she was politically engaged. She had a very razzy personal life. Uh, you know, she brought up her kids. Uh, she had a really lovely house and garden. And, you know, she sort of did everything at a point where we still didn't even really know what feminism was, um, and was incredibly funny as well. Wrote some of the funniest books ever. Um, so, so you can time travel for your heroes as well, and and use male role models. Just kind of just little bits here and there. I think the other thing is as well that. It's very common when people are writing about female, successful females now, if they find a single flaw in them or something, they'll kind of, kind of try and dismiss them out of hand. You can just take little bits from here and there, you know, just like little bits, like a little patchwork quilt of kind of what you find admirable, for instance, with Rihanna. You know, you can just go, you know, she makes a great, she, she's got amazing hair. Uh, not surprisingly, given that they announced this week that it cost £10,000 a week for her hairdresser to travel with her. But, you know, as a hair role model, I love Rihanna. <laughs> as someone who dealt with domestic abuse in quite an odd way, not so much. Um, and I would like her to put a cardigan on. But, you know, you just take your little bits here and there. I've no idea really what to do with the Parliament thing, other than it seems absolutely obvious that the working hours need to be changed. And also, I think our attitudes towards... I mean, the, one of the next things that I would like to write would be about our attitude to politics and politicians. Because while we sort of, while it's still kind of the default thing for people to say, oh, I don't trust politicians, whoever you vote for, uh, the government gets in, and to just sort of treat politicians like pond scum, it, good people will not want to run for election. We catch it, we create a massive catch-22 situation for ourselves. Uh, you know, we should still be able to believe in the idea of democracy. You know, if in the 1920s Welsh miners in the valleys managed to send Labour MPs to Parliament and to know enough about politics in order to be able to do that, then we should, in 2011, be still excited enough about our democratic process to find good, admirable people to vote for and send to Parliament. You know, they didn't have access to the internet then, but they still managed to find people they believed in and, and vote for them. So, uh, you know, I, I would very much like that aspect of it to change. I intend to write a funny book about it at some point, <laughs> but not quite yet. <laughs> I read your book on holiday and I think the day after I got back from my holiday, having loved your book, turned the TV on and it was the right, the right stuff on oh, yes. Channel 5. <laughs> and they said, today we're having a discussion, Catelyn Moran lambasts all childless women for being lazy layabouts. And I, I thought, I'm going to ask her that and I completely forgot to ask you. How did you feel about that? And has, has anyone else taken what you've said out of context and you know, totally spun it against you? I think, I mean, there's been a couple of people who I was astonished by who've gone, who said that I was having a go at women who didn't want to have children. And there are two chapters in the book, one called Why You should have children and one called why you shouldn't have children and uh, three of my sisters have said that they don't want to have children and two of my best friends have said they don't want to have children and have told me about the, the horror of just constantly being asked when are you going to have children it being presumed that you should just all these awful just in, such an insanely personal thing to ask someone when are you going to have children how many are you going to have are you going to settle down now and have children and I was so furious on their behalf that, that, that women would still be regularly asked this question which is incredibly intrusive uh, that I wrote a whole chapter about why I totally don't believe in this idea that the only way you can be fully realised as a human being, as a woman, is if you've gone through a physical process of childbirth and child rearing. I just think that's an incredibly reductionist, it's insulting to women, the idea that you can't simply be, you know, your mind and your life and your heart and you can't go out there and live a, a productive life. And, you know, as, as someone who has had two children, uh, I don't think there's anything that I've learnt from being a mother that I couldn't have learnt by, you know, travelling a bit and reading some books and meeting interesting people and working hard and gardening and looking at nature and walking around and just, you know, just experiencing things in life. There's no 
gigantic lesson that child rearing will, will teach you. Because again, you know, do we think this of the men? Do we think the men aren't fully realised until they've had children? And it's very noticeable, as I put in the book, that whenever you're interviewing a female celebrity, as I've, I've often had to do, that the editors uh, will just kind of go, well, did you ask her if she's going to have kids? And you'll be like, no. And now they go, well, you just need to do a top-up phoner and just ask when she's planning to have kids. They will never ask you that question if you come back and file your interview with, you know, Oasis or Prince or whatever. It's only if you go and interview women. And all of that made me so furious. So I wrote a whole chapter about this, you know, this ridiculous presumption that women are only fully realised if they've gone through a biological process of pregnancy and birth and, and giving up children. And then I wrote a chapter about all the brilliant things about having children as well, because it's brilliant having children. I wanted to do a very fair representation. But there's been several people who've only seen that I've written the chapter called Why You Should Have Children, and not seen that the next chapter is Why You Shouldn't Have Children. And it made me so furious. It was like I've gone out of my way, because I truly, strongly, firmly believe this. But it might have been revenge, because a couple of months before, when I was on Twitter, um, I saw Matthew Wright was on Twitter, and um, he was wearing a ridiculously low-cut um, T-shirt in the style of Louis Spence from uh, Pineapple Dance Studios, um, to which the kind of the, the burgeoning moons of his areolas were almost visible. And I tweeted, if Matthew Wright leans forward any more on today's Wright stuff, we will all see his nipple. And apparently he must have, in the break, gone and looked on Twitter, seen that I'd written this. And then when he came back, decided to pull down his top and flash it and go, there you go, Catelyn Moran, there are my nipples. And so I suspect that maybe he had <laughs> pretended to misunderstand my book a month later simply in retaliation for, for me having kind of made him show his nipples on television. I couldn't think of any other reason other it, than stupidity. I mean, people are quite keen to divide women on that issue, aren't they? You it, know, just yeah. sort of put them against each other. It's one, it's one of the most annoying things, just, just, this, this, just this idea that kind of, that you're a, a thing that's waiting, kind of like, you know, whatever you, I mean, it's a line that I've put in the book, which apparently we have to remove for the American edition, which I'm quite sad about, but um, when people always used to say to my sister, when she said she didn't want to have kids, well, when you meet the right man, you'll change your mind. My sister replied to one of these at the end of her tether, yeah, well, when Myra Hindley met her, met her right man, it was Ian Brady, so I don't think so. <laughs> um, but just, but just... <laughs> But just this idea that kind of like, that, oh, if you haven't had children, you're still waiting, you know? And you could die waiting to have kids. And you, oh, it's so sad she was never fully realized. We never really realized who she was, you know, because she never had kids and we didn't get to see her. I, I, it, just, it just makes me furious, just this idea that, again, it's, it's making women a list. It's making you a list of things that you have to do in order to finally become a human being and be allowed to be happy about yourself. And the idea that one of the things has to be having children is just ridiculous. Um, plus, I really want as many people as possible that I know not to have children because they're there for babysitting and <laughs> they will look after my children and I like that. I think we've got time for one or two more questions. Yes, please. Can I ask how your readers have responded to your chapter on abortion? Because um, I think that was the most difficult chapter, actually, for me and provoked quite a lot of debate, actually. Yes. No, well, the chapter about abortion, that was, that was the other chapter where kind of people went, you've been very brave there. And again, I just didn't. And kind of when we did the first couple of interviews, a couple of the journalists went, um, do you regret doing that? Or do you feel vulnerable for having written this chapter? And in the chapter, I talk about um, after I'd had two children, I had an abortion, found out that I was pregnant, completely unexpectedly, had an abortion. And I was inspired to write that chapter because um, an amazing journalist who works for The Guardian called Zoe Williams wrote a brilliant piece that I'd read about two years before, which I found completely revolutionary in a way that I thought because she'd started the piece going, whenever a woman writes a piece about having had an abortion, she must always in the first chapter say that it was a very difficult decision that she agonised over forever, for ages, and uh, then that she still feels very bad about it and guilty about it. I want you to know that I've had an abortion and I didn't feel guilty. It was a very easy decision for me and I've never felt guilty about it. And that was astonishing to me. It was like, wow, 
okay, I did this was before I'd had my abortion, but it was like, I've literally never seen anyone and woman ever admit to that. And statistically, yeah, of course, that must be true. Not everybody's going to be completely screwed up by this. Um, and then when, I, when it came to me, when I found out I was pregnant, and I was, it was completely unexpected that I found out I was pregnant, I went for a scan, I thought I'd got polycystic ovaries, and just and suddenly found out I was pregnant. And in that second, I knew that I didn't want another child, in the same way as I put in the book, that I know that I don't want to own a gun or travel to India or be blonde. They're just things that I absolutely know that I don't have no interest in doing. I've brought it to children, I know what it consists of, and I don't want to do it. Um, and I wanted to describe what having an abortion is like, because again, it's a very common procedure. And the idea that there are people out there who haven't yet had an abortion, who will have one later, I like the idea of being the first one, possibly being the first person that they'd gone to, to, to know about this experience, that if you've read that chapter and a couple of years later you find yourself having to have an abortion, that I was the first person who was able to talk to you and go, well, look, this is what it's like. This is how you might feel about it. Um, you know, these are things you don't actually have to feel. I think it's actually quite useful for women to be told you actually don't need to feel guilty about this. It's an option not to feel guilty. Examine your own feelings. Do you actually feel guilty about this? Is this actually a difficult decision for you? You have the option to say that it's not. Um, because everything that I'd read about it didn't give you that option. It said this is absolutely how you will always feel at every time you ever have to face the decision of having an abortion. And again, it's sort of, you know, and once you've had an abortion, you talk to your friends about it and sort of, and sort of people start telling their truths about it. And none of the women I know were guilty about it at all. It was seen as, you know, it, it was a, it wasn't a difficult decision and they felt fine about it. And I thought I would love to be able to be the first person that someone out there would read and they will know that it's an option not to feel bad about it. It's something that happens very regularly and let's be able to talk about it. It's so common. Again, if women are being so ashamed of something that's so common, I mean, the, 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 one of the stories we had in there was this girl who'd come over from Ireland and she'd come over on her own and she paid for, put all the 50s down on the counter and went in and had the procedure. There was no one there to pick her up afterwards and we just saw her kind of hobbling out of the out of the clinic and just getting onto a bus. And I was talking to the receptionist and she was like, yeah, she's got to get all the way to Hollyhead tonight and get the ferry back to Ireland because, of course, abortion's illegal in Ireland. And I was just thinking at that point, it's what I put in the book, but, you know, if her, I'm sure, you know, people around her believe that abortions, uh, Ireland's abortion laws are correct. Um, and that's why she, and she's kept it secret from them. But if they knew the reality of what she's having to go through today, I wonder if they would be quite so didactic about those rules. I wonder if they would make her feel that she needed to keep that secret. Because if you're looking at the reality of someone trying to keep their life on track, trying to make a sensible decision that is best for everybody and best for her, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think you'd be so pitiless. And we need to get to a point where we can talk about that because pitilessness exists where people aren't being truthful and honest about what they're doing. And I thought it was a very important subject to be able to talk about openly. Um, and also when I realised that I could actually get a joke in about the fact that the recovery area in, uh, in a clinic looks very much like the video to uh, Club Tropicana in the, uh, in the video <laughs> by Wham. Because <laughs> everyone's just lounging around on lounges and kind of things and you're just sort of given drink, juicy drinks and stuff and for a moment it's like, wow, you've based this on the video to Club Tropicana? I was not expecting that, it's amazing. Um, so, uh, so yes, I know, but it was, it was one of those chapters I always felt enormously privileged to write. I was so happy that, um, with how it turned out and I was thrilled by it. So thank you. I think only Catelyn could have gone from abortion to Tropicana. Hey, and it's one of my skills. <laughs> um, that's the end of it, I'm afraid. But um, Catelyn's going to be signing books in the bookshop. And please join me in thanking her for a fascinating talk. Thank you. Thank you to More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.